Welcome to the Integral Health Resources Podcast. This is Bob. Uh, took a little time off. I had some family visiting. And um, just sort of trying to get back on the horse here. Uh, last time we talked about addiction and discussed uh, an upcoming book by Johan Hari called Chasing the Scream. I did order that book, and um, I got it in the past week or so. Uh, I definitely need a serious amount of time to read it, though, because it takes me forever and a day to get through a book and process it. So I won't be commenting on that for a while. There was an interesting article um, on Salon.com reviewing another book called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. And this is a book by a neuroscientist named Mark Lewis. And uh, he's a neuroscientist, a psychologist, and a former addict. And um, basically, as far as I can tell, at least from the article promoting the book, it's a very similar argument to the one that I made last time. I'm not going to spend really a lot of time on uh, summarizing it here, but there was one one sentence that sort of struck me in the article, and it's it's uh, this guy Lewis. Here's his his argument expressed in simple form: the disease theory and the science sometimes used to support it fail to take into account the plasticity of the human brain. Of course, the brain changes with addiction. But the way it changes has to do with learning and development, not disease. All significant and repeated experiences change the brain. Adaptability and habit are the brain's secret weapons. The changes wrought by addiction are not, however, permanent. And while they are dangerous, they're not abnormal. Through a combination of a difficult emotional history, bad luck, and the ordinary operations of the brain itself... An addict is someone whose brain has been transformed, but also someone who can be pushed further along the road toward healthy development. So I really like this way of expressing it because uh, uh, the the idea that addiction is the result of a diseased brain is actually uh, the opposite of the truth. It's simply the normal functioning of the brain that causes it to uh, get rewired in response to um, any habit especially addiction, um, that's a repeated habit. You're introducing a chemical into your body. It's associated with all kinds of other stuff. So really what's happening in the brain is the same thing that happens uh, during any sort of habit formation. And it's not uh, it, it's not at all like the course of a disease. So anyway, it's a good argument. And uh, maybe I'll you know order that book and read it too, but for now, I'm going to step off um, of addiction, and uh, this week I'm going to talk a little bit about mindfulness, specifically as it's uh, used in school settings. I did a presentation at a conference on this uh, several months ago, and it was called Mindfulness-Based Interventions with Students in K-12 through Schools. Uh, I actually spent two semesters working in an elementary school where we we're implementing the uh, mindfulness-based intervention called Mindfulness in Schools. And it was very interesting, a great experience. And, you know, I've had other uh, mindfulness training before, but this uh, notion of using it in schools is sort of a new, really, really hot topic. And um, so I did a, a conference presentation on it, 
and I'll just uh, I'll make the PDF of the slides available at uh, integralhealthresources.com, and I'm just you know quickly sort of gonna review some of the material in the slides. I, you know, this is a podcast, so you're not gonna be able to see them while I'm talking. It would be sort of too long to go through the whole thing, but I just wanted to you know cover some of this because I think it's a sort of an interesting topic. As a little background, I got my first master's degree at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the 90s in East-West Psychology, which has been uh, you know, a really difficult thing to explain to people over the last 20 years or so as I've been you know, trying to get jobs. And um, it's amazing to me how uh, you know, when I left school in the 90s with this degree, nobody really understood what it was um, and I would try to explain it in terms of, you know, mindfulness meditation. It's kind of about that, you know, uh, sort of like Eastern spirituality and Western psychology coming together. And uh, some people were, you know, a little familiar with, you know, at least what meditation was. But mindfulness meditation specifically has uh, really exploded in the last several years. And now... Um, it's almost uh, too much. I mean, it's this deluge of research studies and uh, media reports and all kinds of stuff on mindfulness. So um, the thing that I'm most interested in as a prospective school counselor right now, anyway, is the is mindfulness uh, used in K through 12 schools. One um, an in- interesting quote that popped up in some of the literature was a William James quote, and James just seems to have been, you know, prescient on so many things, but uh, this quote from 1890 is as follows. The faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. An education which should improve this faculty would be the education par excellence. So, yeah, so James had... uh, had that vision a long time ago, and it's it's suddenly bursting into fruition here. And it's really, um, like I mentioned before, this is a, a trending topic, mindfulness. Um, in 2014, mindfulness was on the cover of Time magazine toward the beginning of the year. At the end of 2014, it was on the cover of Scientific American, the neuroscience of meditation. Um, you're seeing all kinds of celebrities, uh, Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, really the whole Seattle Seahawks team apparently got into mindfulness meditation as a way to, uh, enhance their performance. Um, you'll see things from, uh, you know, other athletes like, um, Kobe Bryant and LeBron to different media personalities, um, Anderson Cooper did a 60 Minutes special on mindfulness where he sort of wired his uh, wired himself up to uh, an EEG machine, and and uh, he was really impressed with mindfulness. And uh, you even see it in Congress. U.S. Representative Tim Ryan is uh, a guy from Ohio. He's he wrote a book called, uh, I think it was The Mindful Nation, and he's been, you know, pushing mindfulness 
in the halls of Congress as a way to sort of uh, get people to be present and be able to work effectively together. And also, you know, he's pushing legislation um, on social emotional learning to get that um, as part of basically an amendment to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. So that would allow for funding for teacher training and administrative training in schools for social-emotional learning programs, which a lot of times involve mindfulness. So anyway, it's an incredibly hot topic. When I did the study, uh, one of the slides I showed was just this number of research studies published by year. There's a little chart from 1980 to 2013, and you can see it exponentially just shooting up from, you know, one or two um, in the late 80s all the way to, you know, hundreds in 2013. When I was doing my presentation, it was, you know, just uh, at the end of 2014 when I was doing all their research, and it was just insane how many articles there were to go through. And uh, even two weeks before I, I made the presentation at a conference, I could have just used published articles within that two weeks before the conference and, and done a 90-minute presentation on just what came out in those, you know, just those few weeks leading up to the conference. So, um, you know, it's been a few months now since that, and I'm sure there's been tons of stuff that's come out. So it's really hard to sort of keep track of everything. The World Economic Forum... Um, was recently held, I think it was in, it was in Davos, Switzerland or something. Um, and, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, the mindfulness, uh, based stress reduction guy was there leading meditation sessions. And we had Thomas Insel, the National Institute of Mental Health Director, I've mentioned in previous podcasts. He was there having a discussion with Richie Davidson, who's a mindfulness researcher, um, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so this stuff is really, you know, getting into the mainstream. Uh, Thomas Insel, for, you know, I've sort of criticized him about uh, basically wanting, you know, sort of a reductionistic brain sort of based research agenda. Um, this guy is, you know, he's definitely on board uh, with mindfulness, he thinks that the research is, is super promising and um, super interesting. So we'll see. I mean, it's being considered more and more an evidence-based treatment and mental health in general. And, uh, you know, and of course, I'll talk about that a little bit and how it's being used in schools. So, you know, just, uh, just to keep the term straight, I mean, mindfulness, the definition that John Kabat-Zinn sort of made famous, mindfulness means paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. Um, I've also seen definitions that are a little more simple. A simple one I like is just awareness of present experience with acceptance. I mean, generally, the gist is, uh, you know, it's just presence. It's just sort of attention to the present moment without commenting on it, without getting carried away. And, the you know, the, the basic core mindfulness practice is... Uh, is really simple. It really is just getting in a comfortable place, sitting down, finding where you feel the breath coming in and out of your body naturally. It could be in your your belly, your diaphragm, 
area. It could be in your chest, uh, your nostrils, and just basically tuning into the sensation of your breath going in and out. And then trying to keep your focus there uh, despite sort of the machinations of your of your mind, which, you know, are bound to happen. Your mind's going to wander. And when it does, you're supposed to note that it's wandered and then gently bring it back to the breath. So really the whole practice is noting, noticing when your mind wanders and then bringing it back. It's the bringing it back over and over again. That's the, um, as Dan Harris, the ABC anchor, who's another uh, mindfulness um, sort of guy in the media. He wrote a book called 10% Happier. He's He says, you know, mindfulness meditation is like doing a bicep curl for the brain. That repeated, just coming back to the breath every time the, the mind wanders, coming back, coming back is like a bicep curl for the brain and sort of changes, you know, your brain's wiring through this, you know, neuroplasticity process and then has a host of other benefits. So, uh, and I'll go into those as well. Another um, sort of model of mindfulness that's kind of interesting is based on a, a Viktor Frankl quote, which is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So the notion is, you know, you have sort of Without mindfulness, you have, you know, a stimulus and then a reaction to that stimulus with very little space in between. It's like an automatic process. With mindfulness, you sort of insert mindfulness between the stimulus and the reaction, between the stimulus and the response, and you have a little moment there where you can um, do something different, you know, choose uh, choose what your response is going to be instead of just automatically react. Uh, another way to sort of think about mindfulness is it's sort of a movement from being lost in your in your thinking processes all the time and grounding yourself in a more sensory um, moment-to-moment reality. Um, your body, the sensations in your breath, sensations in your body tend to be rooted, you know, in the moment, in the flow of the present moment, as opposed to, you know, recursive thinking, which can just lead you into ruminating about the past or, you know, anticipatory worry about the future. As far as, you know, clinical applications of mindfulness in, you know, psychotherapy and psychology uh, really goes back a long way. I mean, in the 40s and the 60s, psychoanalysis uh, psychoanalysis had a general interest in Eastern philosophy and in meditation. Carl Jung often made reference to meditation and, and used Eastern philosophy in some of his theories. In the 60s and 70s, you had the humanistic human potential movement existential therapy, transpersonal psychology, which um, tapped into, you know, Eastern philosophy, like I'd mentioned before, my master's degree came out of that tradition of humanistic existential transpersonal psychology. Uh, My degree was in East-West psychology, which is essentially, you know, the same as as all those things. In the 70s and 80s, there was a, I believe it was a Harvard doctor, Herbert Benson, he used meditation to treat heart disease, and I think it was transcendental meditation. And that was a really big study, and uh, I think he came out with a book, and it was really one of the first times where 
sort of Western science validated the use of this Eastern practice for a health benefit. And then John Kabat-Zinn in the late 70s developed mindfulness-based stress reduction. And Kabat-Zinn was a you know, PhD, some sort of, I think, a molecular biologist. And he established the Center for Mindfulness at UMass and used uh, a very structured mindfulness program and saw what, you know, type of effects it had on uh, physical health and stress and so forth. So that was in the late 70s through the 80s. And in the 90s and the 2000s, you had... Um, this Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress re- reduction model really sort of took off, and there was center, you know, centers were popping up in hospitals and different places all over the country. You had some integration with therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is, you know, came about um, dialectical behavior therapy, which is used with uh, folks with borderline personality disorder that sort of popped up and has mindfulness as part of its therapeutic modality. ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, has a strong mindfulness component. Um, So that's, you know, through the 2000s. It was really 2005 until now, so the last 10 years, that mindfulness-based interventions have been used with youth populations. And really only in the last five years or so has it been applied to students in K-12 through schools. So... Um, And that's where sort of some of these programs like Mindful Schools, like the one we did at the elementary school um, for my internship, sort of comes in. So um, basically, I guess the, the idea of using it with kids just came from the research with adults. And there's Plenty of research now, I guess they got 30 years of research showing the effects of mindfulness-based interventions with adults. There's been meta-analyses done that generally show, you know, medium effect sizes for reducing stress and improving psychological symptoms. And um, basically, from looking at the research, it seems to me that, you know, mindfulness-based interventions are on par with cognitive behavior therapy and medication when it comes to improving psychological symptoms like depression and anxiety. So not only has it been shown to, you know, have a decent effect on psychological symptoms, but also, you know, brain structural and functional brain changes have been been shown uh, in response to mindfulness um, interventions. Like I mentioned, Richie Davidson and others have have shown that you know, there's uh, different parts of the brain where, like, you know, the gray matter will sort of grow in certain places of the brain, again, through this neuroplasticity process uh, when people are meditate in a serious way. And there's been other interesting, you know, brain stuff and physiological stuff. Alyssa Eppel, the University of California, San Francisco, did some research on telomeres which are these little ends of chromosomes that are related to health and, and long life. And uh, mind wandering in general has been associated with both unhappiness and also short telomeres. And mindfulness is kind of the 
antidote to mind wandering. And that uh, mindfulness practice has been associated with uh, growth of telomeres and improved well-being. So that's um, pretty interesting. Of course, there's limits to the research. You can look at my PowerPoint slides um, to see some of that. I mean, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, randomized control trials, although there are some and active controls and so forth and objective measures like I just mentioned telomere length, that is one. There's other objective measures like cortisol levels that can be used in studies. That There's not many studies that incorporate those objective measures with subjective self-reports. Anyway, but after all these years of mindfulness-based interventions with adults, people started saying, hey, let's, let's start using them with kids. I mean, what, what's the harm? You know, I mean, you're talking about just sort of focusing attention and developing uh, attentional skills, so... There's, um, you know, been some research, there's been a few meta-analyses done in the last just couple of years that have shown some small to medium effect sizes of using mindfulness-based interventions with kids and improvements on, you know, various psychological um, variables like depression, anxiety, stress, uh, ADHD symptoms, so forth. Um, the research at this point, isn't great, though. I mean, because there's so many problems, you know, with this, just the structure of the research and the design that you can't really make really strong conclusions, but there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm in this, uh, in this line of research of mindfulness-based interventions with kids. And that enthusiasm really outweighs the evidence. The evidence is just not there, but, you know, we're just really sort of moving forward quickly with this. So you have to be somewhat skeptical and cautionary when you're seeing all this uh, stuff in the media about, you know, the research on mindfulness with kids. I mean, it's growing and growing and growing, but it's really not at any sort of point yet where, you know, you can make strong conclusions. And, of course, um, you really have to adapt the mindfulness stuff to kids. Um you know, we worked in the, in my elementary school, we worked with kids kindergarten through fifth grade. I mean, you can't put them through a mindfulness-based stress reduction course where they're meditating for 45 minutes a day and, you know, all this sort of hardcore discipline. Try doing that with kindergartners when, you know, you've got like 15 minutes to work with them. So you're obviously, you're not giving them the quote-unquote full dose of the mindfulness-based stress reduction stuff. But you can still adapt the basic principles to kids of all ages and just get them to, uh, you know, focus their attention inward, get them to be more aware of their emotions, their breath, and uh, just sort of see what happens. And again, I mean, intuitively, I think it, it makes sense. It doesn't feel like it could certainly cause harm. I mean, when you, when you think about uh, today's youth, um, you know, kids suffer from all kinds of stressors and there's really like a high rate of mental health problems with kids. And the idea of social emotional learning and, and those skills being taught in schools alongside academic stuff makes a lot of sense. And um, the fact that, uh, you know, mindfulness and attentional training can be brought in there, you know, as a social emotional learning skill 
and be used to, you know, promote stress resilience and, um, you know, healthy brain development. Again, it makes sense intuitively in a lot of ways. I mean, the faculty of attention is something that's at the center of their learning process. So the argument goes, you know, why not, why not develop this lens through which all of learning occurs? And, uh, you know, you have a lot of enthusiastic adults like myself and um, the counselor I worked with that they feel, wow, this mindfulness stuff is really helping me. And gosh, if I only had this as a kid, it would have made such a difference. And, you know, we, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of harm that could come. Although there are a few things, you know, you, you have to be aware of, I guess, with uh, kids that have, you know, psychosis and trauma. I mean, if they were like sexually abused or something like that, you wouldn't necessarily want to get them to focus attention on their body and just see what happens. You know, you want to have uh, really be careful with cases like that. So this this concept of social emotional learning is really been taking off in school settings. Um, you can go to the um, Castle, C-A-S-E-L, uh, which is the main sort of social-emotional learning organization. Um, I, I can't even remember what it stands for now. Maybe the Center for Academic and Social-Emotional Learning, something like that. Generally, um, you know, you have sort of five core competencies, social-emotional learning competencies. You have self-awareness, which is recognizing feelings and thoughts, you know, self-management, you know, impulse control, dealing with stress, social awareness, things like empathy, relationship skills, you know, stuff like peer communication, conflict resolution, and responsible decision-making. And you really see how mindfulness-based stuff fits in, you know, really to all of those things, but especially to self-awareness, self-management, empathy, compassion, cultivation, things like that. So there's a lot of research these days showing that social-emotional learning programs are having positive impacts on, on school climate and academic success and all kinds of other stuff. So having mindfulness-based stuff thrown in there Again, it seems kind of like a no-brainer. Um, as far as the specific stuff in schools, I mean, obviously you can bring mindfulness-based interventions into schools in a lot of different ways. You can do it as a universal preventative intervention where you're going into the classrooms, to all the classrooms, and just teaching it as part of the social-emotional learning curricula. Like a, It's a school-wide prevention model. That's basically what we did at the elementary school using mindful schools. We went in there. Each class had a 45-minute period per week where we would go in and, and work on some social-emotional learning skill and uh, bringing in uh, mindfulness-based stuff. You could also use it in small groups, which is a little more focused groups, you know, kids that are having particular behavioral or psychological problems, like, say, kids going through divorce or something. You could have a small group and use mindfulness to help them deal with that. Or you could use it in an even more focused sense with real specific um, kids that have certain, you know, high needs kids, kids with aggressive behavior problems or um, things like that, where you're maybe you're a, a counselor coming from outside the school or, or you had a kid referred to you and you're working 
with some mindfulness-based interventions with just one kid. So there's different mindfulness-based interventions on, on all those levels. So the, that intense level, the high-need student stuff, um, one of the things that, that I read about was called soles of the feet. It was mainly used for like aggressive and disruptive behavior. And it's really just, you know, you get kids to focus on the sensations on the soles of their feet whenever they sort of get revved up and angry and get them to to do that, to calm them down. And uh, it's a way to sort of disengage their attention from a pattern that takes them into this aggressive mode and reorient them and calm them. And, and there's been some studies to show that that's pretty effective. The small group stuff, the you know mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has been adapted for use with kids. Um, mindfulness-based stress reduction in general is, not, is increasingly being modified to be used with adolescents and younger kids. And there's research coming out, you know, seemingly every month, showing that there are benefits. My favorite way, like I mentioned, was the universal applications, where you know we would go into the classroom. And it's basically you're just figuring out age-appropriate mind-body practices to help kids learn how to focus their attention and develop these various competencies, emotional self-regulation. There's there's mindful schools. There's things like uh, Mind Up is another one that you could look up. And we even, you know, we invented our own stuff. You can find things, you know, Sesame Street videos that have, you know, uh, belly breathing instructions and in, in various ways to to do with young kids and um yeah the idea is that you're just adapting some very basic skills and using it uh you know with the younger kids kindergarten first second and then as you work with older kids up to fifth grade you can you know use some of the stuff that's more adult-like things like mindful listening and mindful walking and uh, more sophisticated mindful breathing techniques and um, yeah use them you know just as as a way to get kids to emotionally self-regulate and focus their attention and you know there's plenty of studies out there now that show that this stuff can help not only with the psychological symptoms but even academically it can help so again, mindful schools, there's research, you can check my PowerPoint slides out for that and see that uh, there's, you know, some studies coming out to support that program. Mind Up is developed by the Goldie Hawn Foundation. They have some, some books that you can buy. Mindful schools, I mean, you need to go through a whole training thing and spend a lot of money and get certified. Um, Mind Up is, you know, a little more uh, self-help. I mean, you can just buy a few books that are like 20 bucks each. And, you know, assuming you have some familiarity with mindfulness yourself, you can immediately integrate the lessons in those books into your social emotional learning program if you're a school counselor or even a teacher. Uh, this is also happening, you know, in Great Britain, there's something called the Mindfulness in Schools Project, dot B. It's an, an MBSR modification used with high school students. That's pretty interesting. Inner Kids is another one here in the States. Susan Kaiser Greenland is somebody who, who came out with a book. I think it was called The Mindful Child and has developed a series of 
mindfulness exercises and a curricula for elementary, middle school, and high school kids. And there's now some some studies coming out showing the efficacy of that. And, um, you know, there's others. And uh, on the PowerPoint slides, I've got various links to video clips showing sort of examples of these um, curricula in action. I mean, some of the classic ones that we did are just sort of mindful listening. You you could do this with kids that really have any age. One way to get them to just get the concept of focusing is just to have them listening to sounds in the room, have them get quiet, and just see how many sounds they can pick out in the room. It could be the sound of the air conditioner, sound of kids yelling in recess, or kids from the in the next room laughing or someone walking through the hallway, people coughing, have them try to hear as many things as they can. And then they very enthusiastically, after this minute or two period of, of listening, will volunteer to tell you all the things that they heard. You can do this uh, also with a little bell or a chime. You can have them focus on the sound as it fades and fades and fades away. And when they can no longer hear it, they can raise their hand. Again, this is just a way to get them to to focus their attention. And then you get them to reflect on what, you know, just what it's like. Just to, you know, just sort of calmly focus on, on something. It just seems to have an effect in and of itself to get kids sort of ready to, ready to learn and ready to just focus on what they're doing next. There's also specific compassion practices you know, in, in adult mindfulness, you have the, the meta practice where it's, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, that sort of thing, where you're giving, you know, sending positive vibes basically to others. Could be people that you love, could be anyone, could be people that you don't like even. And just that, that uh, it has certain effects on you. Just when you're, when you're focusing on the well-being of someone else, it tends to make you feel good. And so there's ways to adapt that basic compassion practice to little kids. Um, the, the Inner Kids program has something called Friendly Wishes, which is just getting kids to lay on the floor, get quiet, and picture somebody, maybe a friend in class, or their mom or dad, and, or their, their puppy at home, or sister or something, and just focus on how much they care about that person and... Um, trying to build this sense of compassion and you know again it seems like a no-brainer where you have bullying and and these issues going on in school that if you if you had specific practices that cultivated compassion in kids that it'd probably be a good thing and so you know mindfulness you know has that and has had it for thousands of years and so you know to adapt adapt it to, to kids uh, could have some interesting effects, and I guess is, you know, at least my reading of the research is it's it's it is having some pretty interesting effects. Uh, mindful eating was another fun one. You could get kids to just very slowly eat, you know, a piece of chocolate or a, a potato chip or anything really, and uh, and get them to reflect on that experience. Um, so all the basically the, the standard mindfulness stuff for adults you can adapt to kids. Um, but there are challenges. Um, you know, we had a lot of fun implementing this stuff in the schools, but 
one of the challenges is there really is a need for sort of a best practices approach because really what's happening, I think, for the most part is that folks like myself and the school counselor are just kind of winging it and adapting things and doing it any old way we want. And uh, I think there's there's something to that, that flexibility. But if you're trying to really assess assess it from a research standpoint, that's going to be obviously difficult because you're not having people doing the same thing. There's not really an agreement on sort of the active ingredients of what these mindfulness-based interventions even are. So um, that's tough from a research standpoint. Um, it's tough, to, you know, to get the school itself to get on board can be difficult. We happen to have a principal who's really sort of into it, but, um, you know, it, it can seem weird, especially, you know, if you live somewhere that's, uh, say, got a lot of, uh, you know, a fundamentalist Christian vibe, or there's a lot of kids that are, you know, raised in a Christian or any any other religion, having mindfulness that's, you know, obviously it comes from sort of a Buddhist perspective, even though, you know, it's being presented in a secular way. Most people know that meditation and stuff has some sort of roots in Eastern philosophy or Eastern religion, and people can have, you know, a problem with that. And, um, you know, once you get your principal on board, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of times principles change. And so, you know, it's, it's not that easy to get these things going in schools. Um, also just finding experienced instructors. I mean, the school counselor I worked with, you know, got trained and certified in mindful schools, but, you know, a lot of people can just be folks that are interested in mindfulness and just think it's cool and want to do it even if they're not meditators themselves, and that, that can be problematic. And also just finding the class time, finding the space. Not all schools will even have time for the school counselor to come in and implement a social-emotional learning curricula, much less a mindfulness-based one. Because, you know, there's a lot of pressure with testing and, you know, all this sort of stuff that, you know, teachers don't want to give up academic time for something that seems as frivolous as meditation. So you really have to, you know, really sort of sell the benefits. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, if you are trying to implement a mindfulness-based program in a school, it's really best to, to try to connect it to the educational outcomes that uh, are important to the folks in the school, like improved academic achievement. There are research studies showing that, you know, these mindfulness-based interventions do help with academic achievement. So you want to be aware of those studies. Because if you say, hey, we maybe we can improve our test scores if our kids are more relaxed. Uh, other, other educational outcomes important to staff and teachers and principals are, you know, classroom behavior. If you can show that the, you can reduce aggression and bullying and um, improve attentiveness and classroom behavior, you know, teachers and principals are going to are love to hear that. So you want to be able to uh, be conversant in the research that shows that. And so, you know, as this, I think as the studies get more methodologically rigorous, it'll be easier to do that. Um, like I mentioned there, you know, there are those cultural issues you have to, to, to worry about because mindfulness rightfully is going to evoke associations with Eastern religion. And I know that, uh, 
in New Mexico, where I live, um, there was a a program. Actually, it was Mind Up that was being implemented in um, in Albuquerque, and immediately ran into into trouble with uh, some of the parents who were Christian, and they didn't, you know. They were asking, hey, why is my kid meditating? You know, he, they should be praying and reading the Bible instead. And there was, you know, sort of such an uproar that uh, they actually just shut down the program. So you really have to be careful. In my opinion, um, you don't want to hide the fact that mindfulness is rooted in Buddhism because then you come across as disingenuous and and people can sniff that out. But I do think it's important to present it in the most secular way possible. I mean, uh, there's really nothing religious or inherently Buddhist or anything about paying attention. And that's the type of language that I use. I don't even like necessarily to use mindfulness. I don't think it's necessary to come in with, uh, you know, one of those bowls that looks kind of like a religious artifact and and get all Buddhisty and use Buddhist terminology um, you know and, and get the kids to close their eyes and say may you be happy may you be healthy may you be peaceful I mean it has that religious feel to it I don't think you need to do that um, to have the benefits if you just speak in terms of attention and you use the framework of social emotional learning uh, you probably shouldn't you're probably not going to ruffle a whole lot of feathers and um and that's just my approach. I, I take, you know, a very secular um, approach to these things and just think that's that's the best way to go. So, in sum, um, I had a ball doing this. I think it's a very promising thing. I think it's just going to continue to blow up and get more and more popular and may get more and more controversial um, as, you know, there's going to be... a I think a pushback that's going to be also stronger, probably coming from the religious standpoint, that separation of church and state and that sort of thing. Um, People are going to question how this is being done, but hopefully uh, school counselors and, and people can be smart in how they try to move forward with this. But in general, you know, I think mindfulness based interventions. This is a positive thing. They give kids a chance to cultivate attentional skills that are they can use um, in life and throughout school and just, you know, to deal not only with academic stuff but the psychological stuff as well. And, you know, kids seem to be more and more anxious. They've got a lot of more high-stakes testing, a lot, you know, these academic pressures. And um, mindfulness is just a you know, kind of a nice coping skill to teach. It could be used to develop, you know, pro-social behaviors, more compassionate stuff, improved impulse control. And just in general, you know, it's promoting uh, health, um, physical, emotional, well-being. And so I will probably, you know, talk about this topic again because it's sort of an area of expertise. And I've got only uh, two more semesters left before I'm, a licensed certified school counselor and uh, I may you know be doing this sort of thing uh, professionally soon as soon as I'm done with school if I can get a job 
as a school counselor, I'm sure I'm going to be integrating some of this um, stuff into my program. And so I can keep you posted on how that goes. Anyway, that's it for now. It's been about uh, 45 minutes or so. So again, you can check out my um, PowerPoint slides on the website, integralhealthresources.com. If you have any questions or feedback, you can uh, hit me up on Twitter at integral underscore health or send me an email, bob at integralhealthresources.com. And that's it for now. And uh, I'll touch base with you again soon. Bye-bye.